This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. Thomas Hobbes, the monster of Malmesbury. He looms over all of us as the preeminent defender of the modern state and sovereign power. But nuanced and original, he's probably the most influential figure in modern political philosophy and could be described as the fathers of both modern liberalism and modern conservatism. He was born in 1588 as the Spanish Armada was sailing towards the English Channel and lived through so much turbulence as a result of the Thirty Years' War and the English Civil War that he described himself born a twin with fear. His father was an alcoholic brawler who vanished when Hobbes was young, but the chaos that Hobbes' life was haunted by was mitigated by another context, science. Hobbes was a contemporary of Descartes, Newton, Galileo and Bacon, often corresponding and meeting with these figures. On a trip around Europe, he came across a copy of Euclid's proof of Pythagorean theorem. At first, he thought it impossible, but after studying it carefully, he fell in love with geometry. And it was this method, careful, logical, supposedly irrefutable proofs, that he became determined to apply to politics. Hobbes's originality was his belief that political theory could be deduced from scientific principles about psychology, the senses, language, morality, knowledge and power. Modest, I know. To understand politics, though, he argued that first you had to understand people. saw the human body like a machine. He said the heart was like a spring, the nerves are like many strings, the joints are like wheels. Why the f aren't you going? Influenced by the physicists at the time, he thought the universe was in motion and the body was too. Particles flying around, bumping into one another. Even mental phenomena worked like a car, according to Hobbes. Although he didn't have cars, but carts and horses. Can you go right here? I want to go right. And now importantly, everything is already in movement because something can't be moved from nothing. The universe is always in flux. Even when it seems like I'm moving something from nothing, there's something going on behind the scenes. Blood flowing, sensory inputs, mental phenomena, always in movement. No, sorry mate, no. Oh f Sorry. Ah, uh, what's going on here? This silly, clueless, wally What the Humans are like instable marbles careering around the universe. 
Sensation is external matter hitting the skin, the eyes, the ears, sending signals to the brain and then creating impressions on the mind that lead to memories and imagination. Please, please, please just go. Okay, 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 okay. <clears throat> so Hobbes's materialistic conception of human psychology is of people pushed and pulled around chaotically by appetites, desires and aversions that they can't really control. And our perceptions of what's good and bad is determined by these appetites and aversions. This is ridiculous. Okay, can we get round properly? Uh, yes, go, go, go. Motorbikes, they just think they can weave in and out. Now, here's where his politics begins. If we have desires that are insatiable, if we constantly need food and shelter and movement and company and prestige, you name it, and if we're inexorably pushed and pulled by the desires and aversions we have towards objects and people, is some type of conflict not inevitable? We're going to disagree about what's good and what's bad, who gets what, about even the most trivial things. Hobbes grounds the Leviathan in a state of nature, a theoretical situation in which humans have no institutions, no government, no coercive power of any kind, a pre-societal condition. Human existence in a state of nature is, according to Hobbes, pretty undesirable. In the most famous passage of the book, he says that Every man is enemy to every man wherein men live without security, in such a condition there's no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Reasons to be fearful. The fear of war and violence in Hobbes's state of nature is all-consuming, because each person must always be on their guard. Remember, our desires and aversions are always in motion, and in particular, they're directed at others in a number of ways. Hobbes said that, In the nature of man we find three principal causes of quarrel. First, competition. Secondly, diffidence. Thirdly, glory. The first maketh men invade for gain, the second for safety, and the third for reputation. First, there's competition. According to Hobbes, goods in a state of nature are relatively scarce, but even if they weren't, he argues, we could never have enough because of a perpetual and restless desire of power after power. Then there's diffidence, by which Hobbes means that no one feels secure in a state of nature. 
each will have a reason to be suspicious of being attacked, and so always have a motivation for attacking first. Fear of being attacked and competition over resources leads to a desire for glory, which can protect you through reputation. And finally, we should be fearful of our fundamental equality. Because each has the strength and intelligence to kill another, especially as we can band together against the strongest, then everyone we meet is a potential threat. Even Hercules can be outnumbered. So some want to attack because of scarce resources, others out of insecurity, some out of glory. Would this really lead to a war of all against all? Hobbes asks why you lock away your things, lock your doors, travel at night with companions, and all of this even with the state to protect you. He says look at the newly discovered warring tribes of North America. Look at kings who always point their weapons and are building their forts and spying on their neighbours. So what's the way out of this mess? The first part of Hobbes' theory is descriptive. It attempts to describe the world as it is, empirically, psychologically, scientifically. This was revolutionary for a political theory. The second part of Leviathan, though, is normative. It asks what we should do, given the supposed facts about the world. Hobbes says that in a state of nature, every man has a right to everything and to do whatsoever he thinks necessary to his own preservation. If we have a right to everything, then we have a right to anything that anyone else has, including their lives. But this, in many cases, will obviously not lead to our own self-preservation, because others will fight back. So he says that there are laws in a state of nature, the first being that we should seek our own self-preservation. Hobbes writes that a law of nature is a precept or a general rule found out by reason by which a man is forbidden to do that which is destructive of his life. He describes these at different times as theorems, laws, precepts or conclusions discovered by the reason of individuals. Hobbes says that the first law of nature is that every man seek peace as far as he has hope of obtaining it, and when he cannot obtain it, that he may seek and use all helps and advantages of war. In other words, it's rational to seek peace first and foremost. However, the problem is that no one knows if others are seeking peace too. As we saw, everyone has a reason to be fearful. It makes sense for me to at least be on my guard, treating everyone as a potential threat. We might think of how we tell children not to talk to strangers, or how firemen treat all fires as dangerous, or policemen treat every person they stop as potentially violent. But this doesn't lead to a war of all against all. Telling children not to talk to strangers is not the same as telling them to attack every stranger they see with an uncompromising and cold-blooded fury. If it's rational to seek peace, it's rational not to attack or aggravate others, to give our word that we'll act in goodwill, to accommodate ourselves with others, Hobbes says. One of his laws of nature is not to break promises, because if we do, covenants are in vain and but empty words, 
and the right of all men to all things remaining, we are still in a condition of war. But here's Hobbes's dilemma. Some people will break their promises, will renege on their contracts, will seek vain glory, will try to take more than their share. And because some do, we all have to live in fear, insecurity, a spiral of tit-for-tat reprisals that leads to a war of all against all. The problem, Hobbes argues, is that there are always fools who don't follow the laws of nature, who act selfishly or irrationally. Laws of nature, then, are not enough to lead to peace. Hobbes's Catch-22 has been interpreted in the 20th century as a prisoner's dilemma. A prisoner's dilemma, invented by Australian gladiator Russell Crowe, is a scenario where cooperation should be the best option, but often is not. Two criminals are in separate interview rooms being interrogated. They're each told that if they testify against the other, they'll be set free and the other will go to prison for 10 years. However, if they both testify against each other, they'll each get five years. If they are both silent and cooperative with each other, they'll get two years. Now, if you're trying to minimise jail time, you'd want to testify, surely. In Hobbes' terms, we can think of this as attacking and stealing food and taking everything we can in a state of nature. But then we realise that the other person is thinking the same, which means we both get five years. In a state of nature, we might think of this as fighting and injuring each other. So it now makes sense, surely, to cooperate. So we each only get two years. In a state of nature, this might be avoiding each other or sharing food or keeping promises. But then we realise that the other person realises this too and might then testify against you to go free and giving you 10 years. So if you're trying to minimise jail time, you realise that testifying gives you a maximum of five, whereas cooperating gives you 10 years. So it seems rational to testify, or in Hobbes' terms, to attack, to break contracts, to steal, and to take what you like in a state of nature. Traffic is often thought of in terms of a prisoner's dilemma, in terms of game theory. Imagine you're at a crossroads or a T-junction and someone lets you out. They're presuming that someone's going to let them out in turn, that there's some kind of cooperation, tit for tat. But then imagine you're in a rush or you're just trying to minimise your journey time. Well, then it makes no sense to let anyone out and everyone should just go. But then, of course, that leads to mayhem to chaos. The solution, an absolute sovereign, a leviathan for us all to obey. Okay, you can see where this is going. How do we make sure that contracts and covenants and the peace are kept? Hobbes's answer? Force, fear, or a social contract. He argues that we must be tied to the laws of nature that we need a power to keep possible usurpers in all. He says covenants without the sword are but words and of no strength to secure a man at all. 
because we have those different appetites and aversions, and as such different definitions of good and bad, we'll inevitably come into conflict about what's right, what's just, what the correct interpretation of the laws of nature are. He says, before the names of just and unjust can have place, there must be some coercive power to compel men equally to the performance of their covenants by the terror of some punishment greater than the benefit they expect by the breach of their covenant. What's needed is one common enforcer. The answer, Hobbes argues, is for each person in the state of nature to confer their strength to one single person, or an assembly of people, and lay down their right to retaliate. The problem this solves is twofold. First, in the state of nature, the strong can intimidate and break the laws of nature. Combining into one strong commonwealth solves this problem. But also, each person has a different will, different interpretations of good and bad, different appetites and aversions, and so transferring our right to decide on certain matters to a single person, a singular will, can stop endless arguments and wars. The person or group of persons is the Leviathan, and he that carrieth this person is called Sovereign and said to have sovereign power, and everyone besides his subject. One of the reasons I do like Hobbes is because he provides a novel and useful philosophical foundation for thinking clearly about justifying or rejecting the modern state. In particular, anarchists are sceptical about his logic, and archaeological discoveries mean that we can know more about hunter-gatherers in a state of nature thousands of years ago than Hobbes ever did. Where might he be criticised then? And was life in a state of nature really a war of all against all? That's what we'll look at next time. Thanks for watching everyone, remember to hit like, share and subscribe below and remember to click that bell so that you get notified of new videos. Like I said, I've got two more videos on Hobbes or loosely on Hobbes coming up, including one on human nature a bit longer and then I'll be looking at the concept of authenticity, what that means philosophically and historically. So if you'd like to support any of those videos, please head over to patreon.com forward slash then and now to support the channel for as little as a dollar per month. It's the only way I make these videos. But of course, more than anything, thank you so much for watching and I'll see you next time.